It was the sound that Jacqueline Kennedy was desperate to forget. But never could. Like this 21-gun salute at her husband's funeral just three days after his assassination, it was jarring and took her back to the scene of the crime. Of those moments in Dallas on Elm Street, she would say that winter, that first terrible winter, I've heard that gun go off 10,000 times. I'm Paul Brandish. You're listening to Jackie, a podcast about my book that explores Jacqueline Kennedy's life from November 1963 to October 1968, her transition from First Lady to Jackie O. The day after she buried her husband, Jackie invited the new First Lady, Lady Bird Johnson, for tea in the White House. Lady Bird noticed that Jackie was still talking about Jack, that's what she called her husband, in the present tense. She was talking about the food at the White House and the chef, Renee Verdon. Jackie said, quote, oh, Jack never likes those rich things that Renee does. Now, maybe this was some kind of defense mechanism, a way to deny the reality that her husband was really gone. But the widow didn't really need any reminders when they went into the yellow room. There on the table, Ladybird saw a pair of gleaming black boots and a neatly folded flag. The boots had been placed backwards by tradition in the stirrups of the riderless horse during the funeral procession. Blackjack was the horse's name, and the flag, of course, had covered her husband's coffin the day before. Jackie needed no reminders, though. She was surrounded by them. Two days later was Thanksgiving, her first holiday without Jack. She visited Arlington, then flew to Hyannis. She took that flag with her, and when she got to the home of her in-laws, that famous house overlooking the sea, she went to the room of Joseph P. Kennedy, the late president's father. Now, old Joe Kennedy, he was 75. He'd suffered a crippling stroke two years before. He couldn't speak, was confined to a wheelchair, and missed his son's funeral. So Jackie sat by his bedside, held his hand, and told him everything. The assassination, the funeral, and when she was done, she left him the flag that had covered the coffin. Now, here's kind of a creepy story. Later that night, Kennedy's nurse, her name was Ironic Rita Dallas, she goes into the room to check on him, and she covered him with what she thought was a blanket, didn't notice in the dark that it was the flag. At some point, Kennedy woke up, saw himself covered in the flag that covered his son's coffin, and began screaming. That flag is now at the Kennedy Library in Boston. The next day was Friday, November 29th. Now, for the rest of this episode, we're going to focus on this particular day because what happened the night of the 29th played a huge role in explaining not only what Jackie was going through, but it also shaped much of John F. Kennedy's legacy as we think of it even today. So, November the 29th, exactly a week after the assassination. 
By now, Jackie had told everybody within listening distance about Dallas, every gory detail. Some friends even said later they nearly became physically ill listening to it. That's how bad it was. Here I'm going to bring in another Jackie biographer, Barbara Leeming, from a radio show in 2014. I discovered while I was writing a biography of her husband, President Kennedy, that Jackie Kennedy suffered from post-traumatic stress disorder, or PTSD, for 31 years after the assassination of Jack Kennedy. Remember, this was somebody whose husband's head was literally blown apart inches from her face, and she was left drowned in his blood and his brains. and. To be able to make somebody understand what it was like to be inside her head is an extraordinary thing, and, and you can feel that when you, when you hear what she was saying, when you read what she was saying. It's a unique opportunity to understand something that we really need to understand. Now, post-traumatic stress disorder, we call it PTSD today, this wasn't even a thing in 1963. The name didn't exist, but we now know that's what Jackie had. And again, she told this horrible story to everybody she knew. It was her way of dealing with it. But Jackie wanted the whole world to hear as well, so she called a man in New York named Theodore White. He was a reporter for Life magazine, the biggest, most prestigious magazine in the country. Can you come to Hyannis, she asked him. Can you imagine being summoned by Jacqueline Kennedy? Wow. But this was a problem because, one, White's aging mother had just suffered a heart attack, and two, there was a ferocious storm bearing down on the Northeast at that very minute, a nor'easter. Planes were grounded. So what does White do? He hired a car, told the driver, Hyannis, step on it. And on the way, they stopped at payphones a couple of times so he could check on his mom's condition. Finally, though, they make it to Hyannis. It's raining buckets, the wind fierce. White goes inside. He's shaking off the November chill. And there's Jackie. She's wearing black slacks and a beige pullover. She takes him into a small room and begins talking. In that unique voice that she always had, soft and Long Islandish, she told White every gory detail. His blood, his brains are all over me, she said, in the long, long coffin, as she called it. White scribbling notes furiously on a yellow pad, and he writes how Jackie was so composed, eyes wider than pools, as she tells him this terrible story, and he notices something unusual. It's the PTSD. Again, here's Barbara Leeming. For 30 years, she was suffering from what are called intrusive flashbacks. That means flashbacks that you can't control. They just come out unpredictably at any moment. And one of the things that I realized in, in listening to her is that a flashback for someone who has PTSD is not remembering, it's not a memory in the way that you and I remember Christmas last year or something. It is something that is actually happening to the person again. So that when Jackie would have a flashback, she would literally be back in that car in Dallas again. She would smell the blood. She would see the head exploding. The PTSD would dog Jackie for the rest of her life. She learned to manage it better though, push it into some dark crevice of her mind, but something like that never really goes away. How could it? When the blood scene kept taking her over during their interview, he realized that she wasn't talking to him. She wasn't even in the room with him. 
he didn't understand what was going on because until 1980, nobody, there was no such thing as a diagnosis of PTSD. It was only after the Vietnam vets came back and this diagnosis was actually formulated in 1980 that anybody had any idea what was going on. He didn't know what was happening, but he knew that what he was seeing when Jackie was talking about being in that car was not what he had seen with anybody else. I mean, she was there in the car. Now, it's interesting here, perhaps inexplicable, White had a tape recorder with him but didn't use it. From a historical standpoint, this is a huge loss because a recording of Jackie just a week after the assassination would have been priceless. Years later, White himself wrote that, quote, a talk with Mary Todd Lincoln a week after Lincoln's assassination would not have been nearly as compelling. He's right, and yet no recording. So after telling the story of Dallas for the umpteenth time, Jackie then shifted gears. As the rain continued to pound on the roof, she told White she was unhappy that all these other journalists were beginning to write assessments of her husband's presidency and deciding for themselves what his legacy was. Jackie had her own idea about what her husband's legacy should be. This was the real reason she summoned White to Hyannis. There's this one thing I wanted to say, she told him. It's been almost an obsession with me. All I keep thinking of is this line from a musical comedy. She repeated how she was obsessed with it. She told White that Jack's favorite song was from a Broadway musical called Camelot. Camelot was a mythical 12th century castle. A heroic figure lived there, King Arthur, and he surrounded himself with a group of chivalrous knights, and they sat around a table, and it became known as the Knights of the Round Table. And of course, as Jackie's telling this to Theodore White, she sees her martyred husband as that king, and that, of course, makes her Lady Guinevere. Jackie then recited lines to White from the musical's final number, where King Arthur knights a young boy and tells him to pass along the story of Camelot in its brief and shining moment to future generations. And she tells White, quote, there will never be another Camelot again. So it's exactly a week after the assassination, and here's the widow trying to portray Jack as some sort of mythical figure. Don't leave him to the bitter old men to write about, she tells White. White can't say no to Jackie, so he writes the story the way she wants. And Life magazine, I mean, that was it. It was the biggest and greatest magazine there ever was. Abraham Zapruder, who had filmed the assassination the week before, there was only one place he would allow images from it to appear— Life magazine. It was almost preordained. Then an actual interview with the widow herself— Jackie had the power to shape her husband's image in a way that endures to this day. Of course, if you know the Camelot story, there's an irony here. Camelot is full of infidelity, and let's be honest, that was part of who JFK was, but Jackie understood that's how men were. Her own father was that way, her father-in-law was that way, her husband was that way. And Jackie had a very European way of seeing all this, and this was all subordinate anyway to the image of her husband that she wanted to create, for him to be remembered as some sort of a mythical, larger-than-life figure, a hero. 
I spoke with Barbara Perry about this. She's director of presidential studies at the University of Virginia's Miller Center. That must have been the the awful tension in her life that she not only wanted to try to forget the horrors of Dallas, but she didn't want to forget her her own personal memories of her husband. And she didn't want the country or the world to forget him. But she also wanted them to remember him the way she wanted them to remember him, which to me explains one week after the assassination, the so-called Camelot interview with Theodore White of Life magazine, that she picks out that symbol, that very evocative English mythology of King Arthur and Lancelot and Guinevere and the golden age of Camelot. Uh, And she does get ahead of what she had to know would be eventually stories that would come out uh, about the seamier side, as one book calls it, the dark side of Camelot, that is particularly her husband's womanizing. And indeed it did come out uh, about 10 years later. So Jackie had a head start of about a decade in forming the image of her husband that she wanted, and Theodore White went along with it. In fact, years later, White wrote, quote, more than any other president since Lincoln, John F. Kennedy has become myth. He should know, for on that cold, rainy night on Cape Cod, White helped construct that myth. So the whole Camelot thing was contrived, and six decades later, it might seem easy to be cynical about this, but another Kennedy scholar, Larry Sabato, also of the University of Virginia, says, not so fast. We, the people, needed it. It wasn't just Jackie Kennedy doing it for her kids uh, or for JFK's legacy. We needed it. We needed to mythologize him. We needed to make sense of something that was absolutely not sensible, uh, could not be explained in any kind of rational way. We were still trying to put the pieces together. She did a favor for America by coming up with that Camelot myth. In our next episode... I want to take this opportunity to express my appreciation for the hundreds of thousands of messages, nearly 800,000 in all, which my children and I have received over the past few weeks. The knowledge of the affection in which my husband was held by all of you has sustained me. For Jackie, that first winter after the assassination was long and lonely as she tried to adjust. Special thanks this week to Barbara Perry, Larry Sabato, and Joan Herman, host of the radio show Conversations with Joan, for the segments with Barbara Lehman. Thanks for listening, and I hope you'll check out my new book on Jackie between her two marriages. It's called Jackie, Her Transformation from First Lady to Jackie O. Available everywhere, and if you're enjoying this show, Make sure to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts to help other history fans find it too. Jackie is a production of Evergreen Podcasts. My special thanks to producer Hannah Ray Leach, sound designer and engineer Sean Rule Hoffman, and executive producers Michael D'Aloya and Gerardo Orlando. Show theme music by Josh Perlman Hall. 
Visit evergreenpodcasts.com for a transcript and more info on the show. I'm Paul Brandis. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. Hello, my name is Peter Zablocki, and I'm a historian, author, and college professor. I'm thrilled to invite you to check out Evergreen Network's History Shorts podcast. Every Tuesday and Thursday, join me on a journey through time, exploring the little-known and hidden gems of history. In each bite-sized episode, I'll dive into my original research to bring you intriguing historical curiosities you've probably never heard of, uncovering the fascinating stories that have shaped our world from forgotten figures to overlooked events. And the best part? I've condensed all this historical goodness into manageable chunks, perfect for your on-the-go lifestyle. Whether you're commuting to work or squeezing in a quick break, History Shorts fits into the little time you probably think you don't have. Subscribe now and never miss an episode of the History Shorts podcast, available wherever you get your podcasts.